Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word this morning, that we can set our hearts upon it. Help us to do so. And Father, we are thankful for the work in Ghana. We're thankful that you continue to build your kingdom. Bless Hope Community Baptist Church, Father. Bless, bless Africa Mercy Ministry as they reach out to the orphan to care in the name of Christ. Bless these ministries that your kingdom may abound and your name may be exalted. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the year 1274 at the Council of Lyons in which the Roman Catholic Church declared a series of doctrines. They announced that if you die in mortal sin, you will go to hell. They also declare that if you die perfectly purified from all sin, that is, if you reach the state of spiritual perfection, you will go to heaven. They also thirdly declared a third class, that if you are a member of the church, you have placed your faith in Christ and been baptized, but have not yet reached spiritual perfection, which is most people, you go to a place called purgatory comes from the word purge. Purgatory, according to the Roman Catholic dogma, is a place of suffering where you pay for your sin before God allows you into heaven. They declared, quote, those who have died in a state of charity, truly repentant, but before they have brought forth fruit worthy of repentance, their souls are purified after death by cleansing pains, end quote. There is, they declared, additionally, a fourth category of people. The fourth category are not, not simply those who have reached a state of spiritual perfection, but have actually exceeded it. They've gone beyond. They did more than what God requires. They have done what the Roman Catholic Church says, supererogatory works. That is, uh, above and beyond. Now, if you have done, you reach a state of spiritual perfection, and then you go beyond that, You've done these super erogatory works. You just go to heaven too, just like the perfect people go to heaven. So the question is, then, what benefit is these extra works? Well, 
The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the supererogatory works don't benefit you. They go into what they call a treasury of merit, where the Pope has the authority to dispense other people's merits to, to other individuals who might need it. And so if you would like to gain access to this merit, uh, at least in the Middle Ages, all you need to do is make a cash donation to the church, and then they would go ahead and give you the merit that someone else has accumulated, credit it to you, lessen your time in purgatory, or perhaps bring a, a dead loved one out of purgatory. This was called the cell of indulgences. If you ever see the Pope speaking from St. Peter's Basilica, this magnificent structure in Rome, or, or uh, in Vatican City, that was paid in the Middle, middle Ages by the sale of these indulgences. And so uh, this is what the Roman Catholic has taught and continues in many ways to teach. Um, there, there's, there's just one little problem with this whole system. It's a little thing I like to call the Bible. Because all this teaching does not come from Scripture. Even the Roman Catholic Church would agree with that. It doesn't, we're not finding this in the Scripture. Even we see the words of our Lord Jesus, I think, directly con confronting this idea that your works are going to accumulate to you some merit, as you see in verse 10 of Luke 17. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what it was our duty. You see, what Jesus is teaching is that there is no way for you and I to make God be in our debt, that, that we have saved up merit for ourselves, that we might even have so much merit that we could use for others. God, according to Christ, doesn't owe anyone anything, at least anything we want. It, it, even, even, Jesus says, if you've done all that, that he has commanded you. And so, uh, if you think that God owes you something, I think you'll probably notice your life, you spend a lot of your life grumbling and complaining about what you're not getting that God owes you. But if you think that God owes you nothing, well, then I think you'll find that in your life you will you'll often offer God your, your needs, your, your desperation to Him, and you'll, you'll be quick to give Him thanks and, and place your trust in Him, which is exactly what God wants you to give Him. Notice in this passage what Jesus, Jesus shows us, what, what He wants from us. And He begins by saying, it's not, his, not your words. Don't, don't give God your works. Consider, first of all, that Jesus teaches us that we are not to present our works before God. Look in verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded him? So Jesus says, imagine this scenario that, that you're a master and you have a servant, and your servant out is all day and he's, he's working in the sun and plowing the field, or maybe he's keeping the sheep and the sun's going down and the workday's over and he comes into the house and do you, master, say to that servant, oh, wow, you worked really hard today. Why don't you sit down at the table and I'll go into the kitchen and I'll, I'll make you something to eat. I'll serve you. And Jesus says, no, you, you don't do that. You say, okay, I'm glad you worked hard. Now, why don't you go shower because you're kind of stinky. And you freshen up, Jesus says, and go and you make something for me to eat. 
And then afterwards, when you're done, then you can have your dinner. Now, we, we read this and we might be a little troubled by that. So that kind of sounds insensitive and not very kind. I, I guess the way I, I, I would want to help us think about it is imagine if you went to a restaurant and, and the servant came or the, the waiter came. And the waiter said, you know, I've been working all day long. And I was here very early and it's been nonstop and I'm exhausted. And, and, and in fact, I, I'm just going to pull up a chair here. And, and he sits down at your table and starts helping himself to your french fries. What would you think about that? I don't think you'd be all that inclined. That would be a very strange act to, to do. This actually, by the way, happened to Allegra and I in a restaurant in Berryville. Uh, it, it did. He was literally work, working all day, and he pulled up a chair and sat down with us. And uh, we thought it was very strange. It gave us an opportunity to talk to him about Jesus. Um, but uh, I, I've noticed I've never seen him at the restaurant after that event. So I'm, I'm not quite sure if the, those two things are correlated at all. But you see, even if the waiter does all that we ask him, we would not, it doesn't mean he has the right to join us at our table. Right? In, instead, we might say, well, you know, he's done his job. But he doesn't have a right to become part of our family. He doesn't have a right to break bread with us. Well, Jesus says, okay, imagine that you're a master and you had this servant. And then, notice in verse 10, he flips it. He says, you're no longer the master. You're actually the servant. You see what he says? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus says, you're not the master. You're the one who serves. And when you've done all that I've commanded, you know what you get to say? I'm an unworthy servant. Literally, probably a better rendition is I'm an unprofitable servant. I haven't added anything to you. I've only done my duty. My brothers and sisters, God is not moved by your obedience. God is not impacted by the things you do. Beware of of expecting God to respond to your your acts of of righteousness, to your goodness, to your obedience. Beware of of demanding that God act a certain way because you have done certain things. And I say beware because I think most people kind of have this mindset that we we think if I do all what God wants me to do and I do this and I serve the church and I I sacrifice and and I, I raise my kids a certain way, then God owes me this kind of life. God owes me an easy marriage, and he owes me obedient kids, and, and we've earned some of God's blessings. Even we think about what we considered last week. Well, maybe we don't tempt other people, and we rebuke those in sin. And as Jesus told us, we forgive and forgive and, and forgive, right? And we might think that doing what he tells us to do makes him indebted to us. That he should now respond to us in a favorable way. Right? God, did you see me forgive that person? Certainly traffic should be lighter this morning, right? Because of my goodness. Martin Luther, I think, rightly said that we are quick to say to God, after all, I've preached so long and lived so well and done so much. Surely he will take this into account. This is our heart. In fact, look over in Luke 18. You see this in the heart of a Pharisee. Luke 18, verse 11. It says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I 
fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. You see what he's saying? Look what I do, God. See him parade his, his accomplishments. I, I give and I don't cheat on my wife and I fast twice a week and, I, and, and I, I, I do all these. He's saying, you should thank me, God. You should bless me. And Jesus says to him, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're a servant and you're acting like the master. I did my job, therefore the master should come and bless me. The master should come and serve me. And I would just suggest to you, my friends, beware of asking God to give you what he owes you. Because you probably don't want it. He doesn't owe you anything good. And I I, I don't know, this may sound harsh to you. Um, It might might sound harsh because we're more self-righteous than we perhaps think. If... If, if God doesn't, so God says, I'm, I'm not going to bless you because of your obedience, then the question might be, okay, why do we obey? If he doesn't bless us because of our obedience, why should I then go ahead and do what he tells me to do? And there's only one reason, isn't there? It's because you love him. That's why we obey God. Not because we think it pays out, but because we've set our hope upon God. Because We obey God because he has loved us first, and we now love him. And I would still tell you that love, by the way, is the greatest of all motivations, far more powerful than greed, Far more powerful than guilt or fear. The 17th century pastor Samuel Bolton said, Things impossible to others are easy to them that love. Love knows no difficulties. So we obey God not because we think it's going to pay out. We obey God because He's our Father and we love Him. And therefore, we should not trophy our deeds and our acts before God. That will not move God. You're just doing your duty. Do you know what will move God? It's not parading your deeds, but offering Him your desperation. Not telling Him how great you are, but telling Him how great your need is. God does not want to hear you deserve better. He wants to hear that you need Him, as we see Jesus teach us in this story with the ten lepers. Consider secondly this morning that God, that we're to give God our desperation. Your desperation. We pick up the story in verse 11, reading... On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten leopards, lepers who uh, stood at a distance. Now, you know, of course, leprosy. And if you don't know about leprosy, I, I preached a sermon in Luke 5. When Jesus healed a leper, you go hear all about leprosy there if you want. But let me just summarize it. Leprosy, as you know, is this physical ailment where you lose feeling in your extremities and you eventually harm yourself where the tips of your fingers fall off and often your ears and your nose uh, will fall off as well. A terrible physical disease. But what makes leprosy even worse is not the physical pain, but it is the social isolation. That the leper will, according to God's law, have to wear torn clothes, leave his hair unkept. The leper couldn't get within 50 yards of another non-leper. They would leave food for them, and then they would run away, and the leper would scurry up and grab the food. Fifty yards, they had to stay away from anyone who wasn't a leper. They, they lived fifty yards from life, fifty yards from relationships, fifty yards from their children, fifty yards from everything that they longed for. Well, there are these lepers who hear that Jesus is coming, and by this time, there's not a spot in all of Israel that hasn't heard of this traveling rabbi and the miraculous works that he has done. And, and so word gets to these lepers and they rush out to meet him and they, they stand there in their clothing of perpetual mourning, their various stages of bodily decay, as if, as if they had climbed out of graves. They come to Jesus and you notice where they stand according to verse 12. 
at a distance. My guess is about 50 yards away. And they begin to shout. Not as they typically were required to shout, unclean, unclean. Instead, they cry out, according to verse 13, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You see, clearly what they are seeking is His healing. They do not ask Him, by the way, to heal them because they deserve it. These are not like particularly obedient lepers that have really lived a good life. They ask for mercy. Can you all say mercy? mercy. Come on. They want His mercy. They parade before Him their desperation. Jesus' response is fascinating. In verse 14, when He saw them, He said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. What I find interesting is that Jesus did not pronounce they are healed does not walk up and touch them as he has done previously with lepers, does not tell them to wash seven times in the Jordan River, does not pronounce, uh, give, a, give them a promise of healing. He simply says, go to the priest. Now, why would they go to a priest? They're not allowed 50 yards from within a priest, right? They would think, well, the, listen, we go to the priest. He's not going to be happy to see us. He doesn't want to see us. There's only one reason to go to a priest if you're a leper. And it's if you've been healed. According to Leviticus 14, it is the priest that would certify the healing of a leper and welcome them back into the community. The problem is they're not healed. Go to the priest, he says, in their leprosy. He tells them before they are healed. The question then rises, what would they do? Why would they go? Well, we read in verse 14 their response. And as they went, they were cleansed. They were healed. And I, I think there's a lesson here, my friends, that it is often when we act out in faith by doing what God calls us to do that we experience God's blessing in our lives. That blessings of God often follow our trust in Him. And so often we, we look at what God wants us to do and we say, that's not going to work out. I shouldn't do that because that's going to lead here. If I say the truth, you know what's going to happen here. If I do this, that's going to I forgive my enemy. Come on, you know what's going to happen if I forgive them? They'll just abuse me again and again, right? Sometimes we say it doesn't look like it's going to work out. Or do we come to him and say, listen, you told me to do it and I will do it and I'll let you take care of the results. I'm going to walk in faith that you know what you're doing and I will follow you. Even if I don't see how this is going to work out, I'm going to do what you told me to do. This is the act of the leper. They don't know why, what's going to happen, but they, they, they say, we will follow you, we will tell you, tell, we will do what you told us to do, and they begin to, to walk towards the priest, and it is why they are walking in faith towards the priest that they begun, become healed. We don't, know, we don't know if it was gradual, if just, you know, the, the ulcerating sores on their arms slowly healed. We don't, we don't know if it was suddenly. All, all we know is that it was obvious and that they can see it. I don't know if you could just kind of imagine. I mean, this happened. Can you imagine what this is like as they walk to the priest shuffling in their, their clothes of mourning and, and, and all of a sudden they realize that they have been healed. Can you, can you see in your mind's eye them jumping and, and hugging? Can you, can you see them hollering and, and running? I like how Ken Hughes imagined saying there were no mirrors to reflect the dramatic change, but they saw it in each other instantly. From cadaverous faces reemerged ears and noses. Feet, toeless, ulcerated stubs were suddenly whole, bursting, shrunken sandals. 
knobby appendages grew fingers, barnacled skin became soft and supple. It was like ten new births as the dust of a wild celebration quickly began in the bright sunlight. My friends, this is an amazing and powerful miracle of God that he simply tells them to do something and responds by this, this mighty reversal of their condition. You understand the entire Old Testament, we only know of one time in which a leper was healed. This is, if you will, the equivalent of the mulberry tree being uprooted and planted in the sea as we considered last week. Just a little bit of faith in God and it will give God an opportunity to accomplish great and mighty works in one's life. These are the prayers that God wants to answer. I need mercy. Be merciful to me. He doesn't want to hear about all you've done for him. He wants to know of your great need. Be merciful to me. My friends, is that not a request that you respond to as well? Brian Chappell, a pastor in the Midwest who's written a number of books, he tells of a friend's teenage son who's rebelled against his parents, rebelled against God. Chapel writes, for four years there have been uncountable protests of innocence for unacceptable conduct and innumerable promises to straighten up. But the promises, though they may have been briefly honored, were always broken. So much pain, embarrassment, and discourage have been inflicted on these parents that the wife confided to us that she did not know if she loved her son anymore. Her heart had grown hard against her own child. Chapel continues saying, After an escapade followed by more protests of innocence from the son and more hasty promises to do better, the mother turned her back on the son. Not able to listen again to his excuses, she left the room. As the young man sat alone on the sofa in the family room, he began to leaf through a family photo album that sat on a coffee table. Pictures of a better and happier days past filled him with increasing emotion. One picture in particular struck him more than the rest, and he called his mother back into the room to look at it with him. Said to her, excuse me, Chapel said, the photograph showed the son as a young child under the approving smile of his mother. The teen pointed to the photo and said, Mom, When I see this picture, I understand why you don't know if you could love me anymore. In the picture, hope fills your eyes as you look down at your little boy, but I have dashed all your hopes. Mom, please forgive me. Chapel concludes. And what did the mother do? Her hardness broke, and she embraced him with with a heart renewed in love for him. She did not delude herself that there would be no more troubles. What moved her were neither protests of innocence or fresh promises to do better. Rather, she was moved by his statement of absolute desperation. I think that's a picture of our fathers. What moves our God? He's not impressed by your acts and your duty or your promises to do better. You want to experience God's grace in your life? Confess your need to Him again and again and again. 
I think as, as, as long as we think that God likes to bless the good people, listen, you will, fall, you will fall apart when your life goes bad, or you'll be puffed up with pride when your life goes well. Instead, if we understand that God's blessings and work often come upon us, even in the midst of our sin, right, we will cry out for mercy. You look at these lepers, and, and the leprosy for them was obvious, wasn't it? You can't disguise the leprosy. You, you, you can't ignore it. You can't deny it. On the other hand, our sin is very easy to hide from ourselves. We should, therefore, thank God when He makes our sin known to us. That we might come to Him for help. We should thank God when we have people in our lives that help us see ourselves better. For when we know our sin and the mercy of our Lord, we will cry out like these lepers, Master, have mercy on me. My friends, when, when we see our inadequacy, the, the inadequacy of our works to earn God's favor, even if we've done all that God has commanded for us to do, then we realize that we can only depend upon His goodness and not our own. We often even sing about it, at least we used to. Not, you know this song, Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's just not the song of the new Christian. That is the song of every stage of our Christian work. I need your help. Right? I need you to work in my life. I need you. We pray before him our desperation. And I think we do so knowing that it is, it is so easy when God works in our life to, to receive his work and to enjoy his gifts while we forget the one who gives them. Consider thirdly this morning that God, that we should give God our gratitude. Give God our gratitude. You know, verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And in, in response to this healing, this man returns with praise in his heart. And that, that praise in his heart is wells up and he begins to shout his thanks. He in fact, he comes back to Jesus with the same enthusiasm, the same volume that he had previously cried out for mercy. You notice both times that Luke tells us that he cries out with a loud voice. It, it's actually an interesting phrase. It's uh, the Greek phrase, phones magalas. That doesn't mean anything to you, but it, it's, it's where we get the English word megaphone. Right? This man pulls out his megaphone in order to give his praise and thanks to Jesus just as we should. And he, he comes to Jesus, and when he meets him, he, he falls at Jesus' feet. Or we see in verse 16, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a, a Samaritan. Now, th this, this, of course, for him to come back to Jesus is not surprising. What is surprising is that he's the only one to do it. In fact, it even seemed to surprise Jesus. But well, we read in verse 17, then Jesus answered, were there... We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? You see, Jesus, I think, expected them all to come back to him where he intended to give them a gift far greater than they even dared to dream, which we'll consider in a moment. But somehow these, these other nine, they, they rejoiced in God's gift, but they forgot, they forgot the giver. We, they are what we would call ungrateful. They, they, in fact, they called him master, right? Jesus, master, have mercy on us. But in some ways, they treated Jesus 
like he's the servant just doing his duty. That Jesus' healing of them was simply what Jesus does. That's the thing that he does. Jesus heals people. And, and therefore, would they thank this servant Jesus for doing his duty? And evidently, the answer is no. Right? Jesus was to them a, 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 I don't know, a genie. He was to them like he is to many people a butler. That he exists to fluff our pillow and, and make our life comfortable and, and, and take care of all our needs. And of course, they're not alone in, in understanding this. The, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy that one of the marks of unbelief is ingratitude. We read in Romans chapter 1 that for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. It's a sign of unbelief. In fact, in, in contrast to this returning, in contrast to these nine who have ungratitude, this returning leper not only gives him thanks, but he shouts his thanks. He falls on his face. I think he is this powerful example for us to follow, that we should thank God for every blessing in our life. We should be constantly thanking God. Don't you think? Always, throughout the day, giving God thanks and praise for what He's done. When the sun sheds its light upon a new day, when we sit down and enjoy a meal, when, when God brings mercy on the sick or restores a relationship, we should be people who are quick and repeatedly to thank God as soon as the blessing is received. Throughout the day, we should be thanking Him. Unless we'll, we'll forget. You and I will begin to take, take for granted the life in which He gives us. John Calvin is right when he says we have short memories in magnifying God's grace. Every blessing that God confers upon us perishes through our carelessness if we are not prompt and active in giving thanks. We should be the most, of all, of all people, Christians should be the most thankful, continually thanking God. And, and not, by the way, just for the apparent blessings, but for the hidden ones as well. The Bible says that we should thank God in all circumstances. I was talking to my children last night about the story of uh, Corey Tamboon, and she wrote in her book, The Hiding Place. Many of you know the story of Corey and her sister Betsy, who hid uh, Jews uh, during the, the Nazi occupation of, of Europe, and eventually they were found out. And uh, Corey and uh, Betsy were taken to the Ravensbrück concentration camp, and there they were crowded in these barracks, dotting this concentration camp, and just in, in terrible and unlivable uh, conditions. But to make matters worse, Corey and Betsy not only had to live in this, the squalor of this barrack, but their barrack in particular happened to be infested with fleas. Well, one morning, Corey and Betsy were reading their smuggled Bible and came to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, in which scripture says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And Betsy said to Corey, we need to thank God for the fleas. And Corey said, there's no way I'm going to thank God for fleas. These blood-sucking insects, you've got to be kidding me. Well, Betsy persisted. No, we need to thank God for everything. We need to thank God for the fleas. And so they gathered together, and in faith, they, they said a prayer of thanks to God for the fleas in their barracks. Only to discover in the following months that the reason the guards left them alone in the barracks in particular... The reason that they had time to read their scripture at leisure or openly pray or witness to the other prisoners was because their barracks was infested with fleas and the guards didn't want to go anywhere near it. We should be constantly thanking God for his providential care in our life, even when it's difficult. 
even when it's painful. We should be people of thanksgiving. And I'll tell you, this thanksgiving will only rise in your heart uh, uh, if you realize that God owes you nothing. If you think God owes you, you won't be a thankful person. You'll be, you'll, you'll be a, a, a grumbling person, constantly upset. See, God, God wants us to know that, that whatever he gives us is good and kind to us. It's his, it's his free gift. Perhaps this is why it's the Samaritan who returns to Jesus as opposed to the other ten, nine lepers who are evidently Jewish. Maybe this man who was doubly marginalized both by his illness and by his ethnicity knew that he knew, deserved nothing from this Jewish rabbi. And so he comes to him and he, and he thanks him. Not, not because he thinks, if I really shout and make a big show and fall on my face, then maybe he'll do something more for me. He'll be really impressed with my thanksgiving. No, he's not thinking of himself at all. He praises Jesus, not for what he might gain from it, but because of who Jesus is. This is why he gives Christ his thanks. This man, by the way, who has not seen his family for perhaps years, who was just steps away from seeing a priest who would certify his cleaning and a cleansing, and he can return to his life, and he thinks, yet that can wait. I have my praise to give to my gracious Lord as it dominates his heart. My question for you this morning is, what dominates your heart? What are you talking to God about? Because if you're anything like me, it's often, I need this, and I, I need this, and I need you to do this, and I need you to do this. Where does, where does thanksgiving come in your life with God? I think so often we are asking God to do this for me and do this, and we miss the 10,000 things that he's doing in our lives. I think we are like so often the other nine lepers, thinking, well, if God really cared for me, he would have given me some new clothes too. I mean, how am I going to go home like this? Give me more and give me more. And I, man, to be honest, as I study this passage, I, I shudder to think about all the blessings that God has given me that I just ignored. I just take for granted and I only notice when he withdraws them from me and I get annoyed and disturbed because I no longer have them. One pastor said ingratitude may be his greatest sin as he walks into heaven. It will be evident to him all that God has done for him. Or I appreciate the pa Scottish pastor Alexander White who was once visiting an elderly woman. And he said the entire time I visited with her, she complained about everything and everyone. He said, I got up to leave, and on my way out, I, I quoted to her the scripture that was read for us this morning, Psalm 103, verse 2. He said, remember, the Bible says, forget not all his benefits. Why does it say that? Because we're prone to forget all his benefits. So we need to be reminded not to. I, I pray may, may all of God's blessings upon us and all of his benefits be the lens with which we live this life and see this world. And how much more joyful would we be? How much more stable would our lives be? How much more glory would we be quick to give God if you and I would truly forget not all His benefits? We ought to give God our thanks. Lastly and quickly, my friends, we need to give God our trust. Verse 19. And He said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, he cannot mean that his faith has healed him from his leprosy. Because the Samaritan here received something that the other nine did not, and they were healed from their leprosy. What Jesus is saying, I believe, is that 
your faith has brought not just your cleansing of your body, but it has cleansed your soul. I believe he is referring to this man's full and eternal salvation. You note your Bible has a footnote there by the word well. You look down at the bottom of your page, and it says another way to translate this, or your faith has saved you. This is the, the very common word that the Bible continually uses for salvation. And I believe that this man who was cleansed is now saved. And, and it's amazing that it was his leprosy that brought him to this point. Right? Like fleas in a concentration camp. God's, leprosy was God's providence to him. It brought upon him his eternal salvation. Right? And I think that, that ought to help us in our prayers as we think about especially non-believers and realizing that, that it's the heartbroken and it's the hurting, it's the hopeless whom God often beckons to himself. That God sometimes grants us a limp so that we might lean upon him, that we might trust him. And in fact, you notice that Jesus set, notices this man and comments on this man's, not, not his thankfulness, right? He doesn't say, um, your thankful spirit has saved you, but he says, go and rise, your, your faith has saved you. Now, certainly he returned with gratitude, but this gratitude was simply evidence of the faith or the trust that he had in Christ. Right? In fact, this is not the first time we've seen Jesus say this in Luke's gospel. Do you remember the, the woman of the city, the prostitute, who snuck into the Pharisee's house where Jesus dined and she anointed his feet? And Jesus looks at that woman in Luke chapter 7 and he says, Your faith has saved you. Or consider Luke chapter 8, the, the woman who was hemorrhaging blood for 12 years and reaches out and touches the hem of his robe and he turns to this woman and he says to her, your faith has saved you. Or consider Luke chapter 18 when Jesus encounters a man who is, who is blind and he comes and works in this man's life and he looks at this man and he says to him, your faith has saved you. Just as he says to this leper, this Samaritan man, he comes to him and says, listen, you don't understand something. You are now saved. Your faith has saved you. I, I believe Christ's healing was to be all, all, to all ten of them, a declaration of who he was that it might bring them to this saving faith in the Messiah. But only one sees who he truly is. Only one places his faith in him. And what's fascinating is, is you know, what, what kind of faith is it? I mean, you just look at the story. This, he doesn't recite a creed. Right? There, there's, there's no, like, great confession here. He falls on his face and he thanks Jesus. I will note that verse 16 where it says he thanks Jesus, is, that phrase is used many times in the New Testament and it is always used every single time in giving thanks to God. And so if, if this man does not think that Jesus is divine, it will be the only time in the New Testament when that phrase is used to give thanks to someone other than God. I, I think perhaps we might be safe to think this man understands more about Jesus, that he is the divine son of God. But beyond that, I don't think we could comment about his faith. It's a small faith. We might even say it's the size of a mustard seed. But faith, even the size of a mustard seed, is where God is pleased to do great and amazing things. Even, even the faith of a Samaritan is showing us that God's saving grace is extending beyond Israel to Samaritans and to Americans and to Ghanaians and to people from every tribe and language and tongue, right? The leper, I think, is just a preview of what Christ has done in my life and in your life through the faith that we have placed in 
to him, that we too were far away from God, were we not in our uncleanness, and we are isolated, and we're alienated, and now we have the great privilege to come to him and bow at his feet in, in overflowing thanks and overflowing praise. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian. You don't identify yourself as a follower of Christ. I would like you to understand that we Christians see sin as a far more serious problem than leprosy. That leprosy is terrible, but sin is worse. And I think us Christians would say if we have the option of having leprosy and forgiveness, or no leprosy and no forgiveness, we would without hesitation choose leprosy and forgiveness every single time. That's how bad that we see unforgiveness is and what it brings. It separates us from the one for whom we are made and separates us eternally. Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do do you understand that's who we are? Not not that we all go out and commit terrible and wicked acts, but that we we live in disregard to who God is. We act as if as if God had no authority in our lives. That's what these other nine are doing, are they not? They want God's blessing, but they don't want God. They say, bless me, but stay far away from me. That's the essence of sin. And, and, and yet we see God in God's compassion. Jesus has come to save sinners, not to gather around everyone who's done all he command. He's not looking for the good servants. There are no good servants. The Christian faith is not fix yourself and God will accept you. It is see your need, see your sin, see that you were unclean. And call upon him in faith and he will save you. That's the only way in which we can be saved. As we see our need and come to him in faith, you say, how does he save us? Well, he saves us because he is the only one who is truly clean in every sense of the way. And he became unclean. He became, if you will, the leper. So that we who are born lepers, we who are born unclean, we who are born in our sin can be cleansed. Or, or you might put it this way, Jesus is the one master who actually rose up and began to serve the servants. Not because he owes it to us, but because he loves us. And he didn't just offer us a nice dinner, but he offered us himself on the cross, that he would go to the cross and there serve us by paying for our penalty uh, for our sin and being raised three days later from the dead. He took our uncleanness on himself, our sin upon himself, and he rose and offers it to us. It is by faith. You are saved. If you could take one thing from this sermon this morning, I pray that we would all just be solidified in our heart, especially my friends here who are not believers in Christ, that we believe it is not our goodness that saves us, but simply our trust in the one who has been good for us, namely Jesus. I wonder, my Christian brothers and sisters, is there reason in that for you to give thanks today? I don't know where what your life is like and what challenges you are facing, but I could tell you that that no matter how painful it is, God is good to you. And we see it not necessarily in the circumstances of our life. We may not see how it works out. We see it in the cross of Christ. May you and I live this day and the days to come, in fact, all eternity, quick to thank God for who He is and what He has done. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for our eternal salvation and 10,000 times more. Blessing after blessing after blessing. Forgive us. When we do not see it, forgiveness, when we take it for granted, forgive us when we demand more and more and more because we think you owe it to us. Instead, help us to see that all that we have received from you is is your grace and your blessing and that we would be people to give 
thanks, quick to give thanks in any and every circumstances, knowing that if you have given us your Son, will you not therefore give us all things in Christ Jesus? We pray for our friends here this morning that perhaps has yet to bow their knee to King Jesus. We pray that you would see, that you would help them see how good he is and how much he loves them and that they would be moved to, like this leper, to fall on their face and his feet and put their faith in him, a savior who would take care of their sin forever. Help them that their lives too may be changed. Help them know that you can speak in their heart if they would trust in you, that they would hear the words of their creator, your faith has saved you. Do that great and mighty work even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.